Welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF Woof Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button, do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday, and you're going to want to check them out. Now, you can also follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast, and our YouTube channel will be launching soon. Now, today on the show, leashes and collars. We got to talk about them. It's definitely some of the most important training tools when it comes to working with your dog. What kinds maybe you should be using, shouldn't be using. I'll give you my thoughts and we'll go into more detail on those. Then comes animals as mascots. It's a topic that's kind of resurfacing lately. People are talking a lot about it. Should animals not be mascots with, you know, colleges and universities and pro teams and We'll talk more about that. Then comes the first pets and the listener Q&A. If you guys have questions for the listener Q&A, keep sending them my way. You can email me questions at speakadogcast.com or just message me on social media. Now, before we get going with today's show, got to give you that trivia question. Today's trivia question is going to be the first dogs registered to the AKC were a part of what group? Yes, which group in the AKC were the very first dogs registered to? I will give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's podcast, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, leashes and collars. We're not talking about anything kinky today, guys. <laughs> Get your minds out of the gutter. We're keeping it above the line today. No, we're talking about leashes and collars, of course, with your dogs, with your pets. And guys, there are so many to choose from, aren't there? There are. There's just no shortage of different types of leashes and collars. And really what we're looking at is restraint mechanisms, right? Restraint and control mechanisms. Um, there's every collar you can think, think of, every kind of harness you can think of, uh, you know, um, uh, gentle leaders, right? There are so many, so many different tools out there to try and walk your dog. Unless I say try. Um, now, again, the word I use is tool, right? Because these are all tools and they may not be the right tool for the job. It also takes some understanding of what a tool is in order to use it properly, doesn't it? I mean, look, I, I could give the example of something as simple as a hammer. Anybody who's used a hammer more than just like maybe nailing in a nail for a picture, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Believe it or not, guys, and I know this sounds a little crazy if you don't know, hammering actually takes a little bit of skill and understanding what you're doing with it. It's not ridiculously complicated, but it's understanding leverage, how to hold the hammer and, and how to hit it, how to go far, go, go far uh, how far back to go. And If you ever see somebody to hit a nail and it goes sideways and they can't, it's because they don't really know how to use a hammer properly. If you have to hammer in hundreds and hundreds of nails, guys, and you don't know how to do it correctly, you're going to be hurting by the end, you're going to be blistering by the end, and you're going to be sore. And if you do it correctly, on the other hand, if you have the knowledge and understanding of how to use the tool, what the tool is actually designed to do, you get a better result. So I could take that same understanding of tools and go over to dog training and something as simple as a collar or a leash without understanding what the purpose of that collar, what the purpose of that leash is, how are you going to get the best result using it? You know, it seems kind of simple, but think about it, right? If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know, how can you use it properly? The answer is you can't. Okay, so it's important that you understand whatever tool you're going to end up choosing to walk your dog, you need to know why you're using that tool. Well, because, David, it's it's got a fun label on, on the packaging that says, no pull, har no, no pull harness. It does, it's going to make my dog not pull me anymore. 
Let me know how that goes. Um, <laughs> guys, there's no magical fixes when it comes to training, right? There's no such thing as this magical fix. There isn't somebody who's sitting in a, in a, in a, a dog, uh, you know, uh, collar company and harness company. And they're sitting there going, oh, let's, I'm going to change the world by this no pull harness. Look at that. We'd, guys, if it really was a magical fix, don't you think everything else would be obsolete then? If it's so magical, why are there seven other harnesses claiming the same damn thing? I mean, put a head on your shoulders and think about this. <laughs> okay. So, all right. I, I don't want to, we're, I'm not going to, we're, we're going to talk about harnesses some more. And we're going to talk about all of these tools individually uh, more. And, you know, the cool thing is we're, we're starting to video our episodes and the YouTube channel is getting up there and there's going to be all the, so today we got some visuals to work with too. So we're going to start with my favorite tool. And look, I'll be honest, guys, 100%. 98% of the time, you guys don't need any other tool but the what I'm going to show you, this this one collar, okay? Now, this is my favorite collar. I might, might get Riker a little excited here because this is his collar. Of course, he knows the noise. Um, this is what we call a Martingale collar. Now, you'll notice a couple things. Number one, his tags can actually go right on there. It's not a problem. His tags can be attached to this Martingale collar. Uh, it's not going to affect it anyway because I hear that a lot. People go, well, I want to put the tags on. I want a regular collar. You don't need a regular collar. They can go right on the collar right there right where my leash attaches, and it's gonna be no problem. Now, Martingale collar, guys, you'll notice it's three quarters cloth and one quarter chain, and that one quarter chain actually connects to the three quarters cloth, so that way when you restrict and pull on that chain, it's actually going to restrict and constrain the cloth around the dog's neck. Now, always have to give the uh, disclaimer. Guys, when we're using restricting collars, we never, ever, ever wanna be pulling and holding. That is not the purpose of these collars. What did we just talk about, right? Having the knowledge and understanding. If you don't understand how this collar is supposed to be utilized, you're gonna use it wrong and you're not going to get a good result, right? So I get I get that pushback where David, I don't want a restricting collar. I don't want, oh, I don't want to, you're not gonna choke your dog. You're not gonna, if you, if you do this correctly, guys. The whole concept of these collars is to go in with a correction and release immediately. So it's a very quick mechanism. We make quick pop corrections as to never pull and hold on our dogs. Okay, multiple reasons for that. Um, we're not gonna dive too much into the, into the psychology behind it today, but look, simply put, guys, dogs are very quick. They're very quick in their thinking, they're very black and white in their thinking, so it's very important that I give them quick black and white information. Uh, sorry, you might hear, we've got puppies playing in the background here, so you might hear a little bit of grumbling, they're right behind me on the floor, hi guys. Um, anyway, so the idea is we wanna be quick with our information, and that's why we wanna pop and release. Again, not getting too much into the psychology, but for those of you long-term listeners, long-time listeners, I appreciate it, uh, right? That's gonna be consequence or punishment in the releasing it is going to be the negative reinforcement. We'll revisit the psychology behind this collar uh, again soon on an episode of soon. Hey guys, I know we're having fun, but you gotta be a little quiet. <laughs> They're really cute though. Anyway, Martingale collar. Guys, it comes in all different sizes. I use one on my Chihuahua. I use one on Riker here, and he's like a 60-ish pound dog. I uh, used one on my Half Lab, Half Great Dane, Penny Lane, who was 90-something pounds, and Fred, who was 100 pounds, right? So uh, this is going to be the best collar that you can use. Martin Gale collar. I cannot stress it enough, guys. You're going to want to grab one of those. They sell them at all the pet stores. They, buy, they sell them on Amazon. You can get them anywhere. Now, one, disc one other thing I want to note about the Martin Gale collar. Make sure you're getting that three-fourths cloth and one-fourth chain, not an all-cloth martingale. The all-cloth martingales just aren't quite as fast at releasing or, or even constricting for that matter. And remember, I want my information to be black and white, okay? The chain one lets me, lets me do that, okay? All right, so moving on. 
the next caller that <laughs> we're going to talk about that gets a lot of slack, and I brought a big one. I did. This is a pretty big one. I wanted it to be able to, you know, visually be able to see it a little more. This is a very thick one. This is made for a very big dog, but this is called a choke collar. I hate that name. Because <laughs> again, guys, for a constraint collar, constricting collar, if we use it properly, we never want to pull and hold. We want to pop and release. Okay, so this is what we call a choke collar, a chain collar, correction collar, training collar. I've heard lots of different terms for these. Uh, but simply put, the chain feeds in itself, so when we pull that chain, you'll see it gets shorter and constricts, right? That's the concept behind the choke collars. Now look, I don't have a problem with choke collars if it's the correct circumstances. Majority of you will not need this choke collar. If you have a little dog, you do not need a choke collar, okay? Martingale is going to suffice. That's what I really try to do, guys. I don't want to go overboard with my corrections. I want to go just enough, okay? So these choke collars are going to be more reserved for larger dogs, more powerful dogs, dogs that have thick necks that, quite frankly, don't work to avoid the martingale collar, okay? And if they don't work to avoid the martingale, martingale excuse me, we go up to the choker collar. All right, now from there, there's one more step we can go. I don't try to, I, I don't like to go to this collar if I don't have to, but the reality is, guys, a punishment is only a punishment if an animal works to avoid it. If they don't care to avoid the martingale, if they don't care to avoid uh, the, the prong, uh, excuse me, the choke collar, that's where we go up to the prong collar, okay? Once again, these get a bad rap. I know, we see the prongs, David. Uh, look guys, the thing with the prong collar is we have to remember the whole concept of these collars. They're literally meant to take the place to mimic how dogs naturally correct each other, which is with teeth. They nip each other in the neck. They'll drag each other to the ground with the neck. And this is meant to only mimic that, right? This isn't going to be as intense as dogs biting each other, but the concept is to mimic it. And quite frankly, some dogs just don't care to avoid the other forms of consequences we have to provide. So in those more rare circumstances, we do have to go up to something like a prong collar. It, it, guys, it is what it is. The definition of punishment is an animal, anything an animal works to avoid. The only way to decrease behavior is through punishment. And if, okay, if the only way to decrease behavior is through punishment, but the animal doesn't work to avoid what I'm trying to make a punish, then we have to take the punishment up. And that's where our collar progression comes in. So guys, those are the three tools that I use. Majority of the time, and I'm talking like 97, 98% of the time, I'm using a martingale collar. The other 2%, it's between the choker and the prong collar. More choker than prong, quite frankly, I, I do. I go more to the choker collar than I do the prong collar, but we're talking 2% of my clients, 2%, maybe even, well, it's less than 2% because it's split between the two of them, okay? So that's the point I wanna make to you guys today. We don't have to go crazy or overboard with these corrections, and we can do it in a nice progression that allows us to see what tool is going to work best for you and your dog. Finding that threshold where it's just enough of a punishment that the dog wants to avoid it. Okay, so from there, uh, we also are gonna talk about our uh, leashes. And look, for me, it's pretty simple, guys. I, I wanna keep, I wanna K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. When it comes to a leash, plain old nylon, regular leash, nothing crazy, guys, six feet. All right, six feet's my favorite because it allows us enough room to be able to uh, manipulate the leash if we need to, give them a little space if we need to, uh, excuse me, or reel it back in. Six feet's not ridiculous to hold in our hands either. So it's that nice happy medium between just enough length and not too much length, okay? If you wanna use a leather leash, I don't have a problem with that. If you look, this is only, uh, this three quarters, I think this is, yeah, this is a three quarter leash, oh, definitely. Uh, three quarter inch leash. 
If you like a thinner leash, because your dog is smaller, no problem. But if you get up to a bigger dog, you are going to want to go make sure you got that three inch or three quarter inch, maybe a one inch. Um, some people like the double ply, the double thick leash. My wife really prefers that. She says it feels a little more comfortable in her hand. She feels like she has more control. Nothing wrong with that. Once again, as long as it's not a stretchy material, as long as it's a regular leash and it's six feet or less. Okay. That's where you want to go. Um, these guys are having too much fun behind me. <laughs> it's almost distracting listening to them play, but they're having a good time. All right, so that's for the leashes. Guys, runaway leashes are a big no-no. Get rid of them. The extendable leashes, get rid of them. They are terrible. They should be against the law. They are dangerous, and I can't stand them. Ask any veterinarian, ask any other trainer, and what are they gonna tell you? Get rid of those damn leashes. Guys, you go out to public events now and they actually have to write on the flyers when they say dogs are welcome. I've seen it multiple times now. They say no extendable leashes, six foot leash or less. Thank you. Common sense playing into here. Um, <laughs> okay, extendable leashes are a big no-no in my book. It, it really forfeits control with our dogs. It lets it be a free-for-all. And again, it's just dangerous. It's just downright dangerous. Eh? You can get caught up in it. You could let go of it. I've seen them snap. Um, there's so many things that could go wrong with an extendable leash, so you gotta get rid of them, you gotta stop using them, okay? So that's really kind of it for the leashes. Let's move on to different tools that maybe I don't recommend. <laughs> Look, gentle leader, we can start there. The gentle leader, it's one of these things where, again, I've heard people have success with it, but usually the reason they have success with it is because the dog hates it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to use a tool that my dog absolutely hates. I don't want them to be on a walk and be miserable because they don't enjoy this thing around their face. That's the only time I've ever heard that the gentle leader gets them good results. And even the owners are like, it gets me good results on the walk, but my dog looks miserable. That, that's, that stinks. That's not what I want. <laughs> guys, <laughs> you guys hear this? This is crazy. Um, anyway, so... Yeah, you know, the gentle leader is just not my halter, you know, they're you know, kind of similar mechanism. I'm not a fan of anything over the face. It's unnatural to a dog, whereas, if, look, I, I actually can't even use that argument, to be fair, because being restrained in any sort of leash collar or whatever is actually not natural to a dog, right? We actually have to teach dogs. That's why some dogs have a harder time with it. That's why you might find a dog who... Um, can't see other dogs on leash, but it's perfectly fine with them off leash, that kind of stuff, because it's fight and flight. We're not gonna dive off into this today. Um, but suffice it to say, dogs have to be trained to uh, relinquish control, essentially, to give up and be okay with being restrained. They have to be taught that, but some dogs just roll with it and that's fine. But majority of them have to be taught to some degree. Even this little cute, adorable puppy I have playing here in the background, first time we put a collar on him, he was like a bouncing uh, horse. I mean, he was just rearing up and going nuts, and now he is just absolutely incredible on leash. You know why? Because we used a martingale collar. <laughs> all right, all right. So anyway, getting back to it, yeah, I don't like anything over the face. I want to be natural about it. I want to go for the neck and make corrections at the neck uh, where dogs naturally make corrections and it allows me to redirect their focus too, okay? All right, so that's kind of my thing on the halters and, and, and gentle leaders. Uh, I just don't love them for a multitude of reasons. All right, so moving on next to the harnesses, the dreaded harness. Look guys, harnesses were created for one reason and one reason only. See, he doesn't like the harness either. To make a dog pull, okay? That's the whole point of a harness because you have to think of it like this. Um, 
when we needed dogs to pull sleds or pull carriages or pull whatever things they pulled over the thousands of years, we created these uh, sledding dogs and herding dogs that could, oh, not herding dogs, excuse me. Um, <laughs> we needed a mechanism for the dog to, to attach to the dog to be able to let them pull us. Now, we can't throw a collar on a dog and have them pulling. It's going to choke them, clearly. So we needed something like a harness, where it actually can use their body and the weight of their body to pull the sled. But there's another thing going on here. It's not just the fact of, of it can't, you know, we don't want it to choke. Here's the other thing. What did we just talk about a second ago? Fight and flight mentality, right? Anytime a predator feels any kind of restraint against them, their natural inclination is to fight against it. So if this predator feels restraint all around its chest and neck, it naturally wants to pull against it. And boom, we have a sledding dog doing what it needs to do. So knowing that information, why in the world would I put a harness on a dog to get them to stop pulling? You see the problem here. Guys, go outside, go walk down the street, uh, take a week. I'm serious. Go take a week and walk around in public. And I want you to watch. And every time there's a dog on a harness, I want you to count how many of them are walking with their owner and how many of them are in front of their owner. I bet I can tell you what the ratio is going to be and which side is going to be more. Um, so, yeah, I don't like harnesses because they stink at getting dogs to focus. They stink at getting dogs to walk next to you, and they're not the right tool for the job. Have I mentioned the tools that are right for the job? Yes, I have. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, so I don't like the harnesses, guys. They're terrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. The other thing with dog training, and for that matter, animal training in general, um, Training is all about the ability to guide and direct an animal's focus and control their focus, right? And where is a dog's focus? It's pretty, it's not a trick question, guys. It's up here, right? It's in their eyes. It's in their head. It's in their uh, noses. It's, it's, it's all here. So if I'm controlling down here and I'm not controlling anything up here and I can pull and yank and the dog can still turn any way it wants to, I'm not really controlling their focus, am I? As a matter of fact, I'm forfeiting that control of their focus by allowing them to just keep doing whatever they want. But if I have this wonderful martingale collar on and I make a little correction, it actually, these little pop corrections, it actually redirects their focus. This is one thing I tell my clients I love about this collar. It tells you when you've done it right because your dog will literally magically look up at you. Yeah, I joke. I say, there's no such thing as training in magic. This collar is the closest thing to it. It's not magical. It's not always going to be this magical fix. But guys, if you use it right with consistency, repetition, and the correct technique and understanding of what it is, your dog will literally focus right back up at you if you use this properly. <sighs> it's everything. It's everything, guys. It's every, And that's the same concept as the prong collar. Same concept as the choke collar. Uh, they're just a different level of correction, but it's the same concept applied on a different level. Okay, so we've got to keep it simple here with our training. We've got to stop overcomplicating, stop finding all these fancy tools and the harness and the this and the that and the gentle leader. No, out with the complication, guys, in with the simplicity. So we got one more tool we have to talk about that, you know, look, I, I guess I see the merit in what people are trying to accomplish by using this tool, but I just can't get on board with it. And that is the shot collar. I, I, I see their point. In the sense that, okay, David, we've exhausted all these corrections and these options. Um, the dog doesn't want to stop. Look, this is a discussion for a different day. It is because you're talking about potentially red line type uh, behavior. And it, it, that's a different story for a different day because how we go about fixing that is not always just as well slap a collar on them and it fixes everything. No, guys, 
You're talking rehabilitation at that point. And sometimes the last thing you want to be doing to a red line dog is sending them more into a red line by providing a very unnatural and harsh correction. Well, David, we start with a low, low shock. I, guys, I don't care. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. It's unnatural. And I want to use tools uh, that allow me to communicate with dogs in the most natural way possible. I have seen cases where shock collars make the dogs a thousand times worth, worse with just one use. Okay, one shock to that dog. It was already beeline and, and you send it into overdrive because of something like that. So shock collars are not my favorite tool from that standpoint. And then from a secondary standpoint, I don't like any tool, tool that I have to have batteries for. I don't like any tool that has to be recharged. I don't like any tool, same thing, clicker training. I don't like any training tool that I have to have in my pocket at all times because what happens when you don't? You're a human being, guys. <laughs> You're going to forget. You're going to forget to charge it, forget to replace the batteries, forget to bring it. And when you need that tool and it doesn't work, you're in trouble, buddy. I can tell you one thing though, this thing isn't gonna fail. This is gonna be on their neck all the time and I can even reach in with my hand and grab it to make a correction even if I don't have a leash on them. Can't do that if I don't have the remote for my shock collar, huh? So those are my biggest gripes with the shock collar right there, guys. Um, I, but that that's kind of my overview of all of them, really. It, it, at the end of the day, guys, the whole point of a collar is to minimize and decrease undesired behaviors that we don't like in our dogs, whether that be pulling, lunging, barking, any of these things running away from you, very basic behaviors that we are trying to get our dog to avoid. The only way to get an animal to avoid certain behaviors is by providing a punishment. The rules of psychology dictate it. The only way to decrease behavior is through a punishment. The definition of punishment, anything an animal works to avoid. If they don't work to avoid it, you have to take the punishment up. Again, guys, understand what these tools are and how to utilize them properly. I highly recommend you reach out to a professional so you have a better understanding of how to use these tools so you can work with your dog in a cohesive way that's going to gain you better success, okay? Uh, knowledge is power, love saying it, and knowledge is power. Uh, it's so true, it's so true. Have an understanding of what you're doing, know what tool you're using, why you're using it, and if you're using it properly. Hope that helps out, guys, and most of you guys go out there, get your Martingale collar and a six-foot Nylon leash. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website www.thenatureoftraining.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Next on Speaky Dogcast, animals as mascots. Definitely has been more and more controversy about this lately, as there is everything. Um, <laughs> because everybody's got an opinion now and everybody's opinion has to be heard and we all need to have participation trophies and 
Okay. So here's the thing, guys. I, I'll just be very honest. I am not anti having mascots, animals as mascots. And so, you know, some people go, what's wrong with calling yourself the bears? Well, there's nothing wrong with calling yourself the bears, but people see something wrong with it if they have a bear on property, on campus, right? Like that's, where's the line? Um, and here's the thing. It really comes down to animals in captivity when you think about it. And so are they really going after animals as mascots or are they going after animals in general, including your dogs and cats, in captivity. And so there's really the argument, guys, is are, is it really about the animal as a mascot or is it about animals in captivity? And that's the real problem some people have. Some people. Are those people right or wrong? I'll tell you right now, they're 100% incorrect and wrong. Guys, I, I, you're an animal lover, most likely, if you're listening to this, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Human beings suck, and we are destroying this planet. And in destroying this planet, we are killing off animals everywhere. And the only way for survive, a species to survive is through, I don't know, education, captivity, uh, reintroduction programs, breeding programs, all of which require, we already said it, captivity. In order to save these animals, we have to have them live in captivity. It does not take a genius to figure this out. If we released all of these animals back into the wild, first of all, a lot of these animals have never lived in the wild and they won't survive in the wild. That's number one. And number two, we're gonna lose them all <laughs> if we don't, okay? So really, I think when it comes down to this argument about mascots and animals as mascots, um, what people are really saying is they don't want animals in captivity. A lot of people, not everybody, right? But that's that's the message that gets put out there. It gets misconstrued where the extremists get heard and they are the minority of the population. It sounds familiar in a lot of things in life, huh? Um, <laughs> you know, so that's the thing. It, it, it's, it's not about logic anymore, is it? It's all about emotions and getting people to feel. And Because look, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a certain school, everybody's heard of him, Auburn University, and what, what are they, the War Eagle, right, War Eagle, um, and they have an eagle, flies into the stadium, and people, oh my god, that poor eagle is going to be so scared, all the noise, I'm sorry, do eagles just not live near highways, eagles just don't live near human beings anymore at all, it's just not a thing, because highways are pretty loud, humans are pretty loud. You think they don't get used to the noise? They're like, oh, I, no, I can't, I can't. I gotta, I gotta move. We have to move. We're, we're Sheila, get your bags. We're going to the mountains. Like that's, not, <laughs> that's not what's happening here, guys. Animals are more capable than we give them credit for. Because at the end of the day, haha, it's psychology 101. It's conditioning. If baby bird was born next to the highway, baby bird isn't going to give a crap about the highway when it's two years old because that's the way it's always been. People don't like to hear the reality that an animal born in captivity doesn't know it's in captivity unless we get into the higher intellect animals, which is not what we're talking about today. Okay, there's not the University of Ohio orangutans. Like, that's what I wish they were because I don't like them. But, you know... <laughs> That's actually Ohio State. I'm referencing a little more of a slight to them to call them Ohio, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about that. Um, getting back to it, though, guys, it, there's nothing wrong with having a bird fly into a stadium if you condition it correctly and get them used to it. You know why the bird does fly in the stadium successfully without a problem? Because it doesn't care about what's going on. Around. It's going. There is food on that glove. There is a mouse that is so yummy, and I'm going to go get it because that's what instinct tells me to do. 
They conditioned the bird enough to not care about anything else. And to me, that's incredible. To me, that shows how capable and adaptable animals are that we don't give them credit for. So is it wrong to have animals in captivity? No. Is it wrong to have animals as mascots? No. The asterisk on this is it has to be done properly and correctly. And come on, guys, it doesn't, like, again, this, I know there's people out there who don't, but that's the point. The more education we do, the more we put it out there, the more people understand what animals in captivity require, what they need to make them happy, healthy, and thriving. If you look at any animal in captivity and the average lifespan, Normally, under most circumstances, animals in captivity have twice the life expectancy of, a, of wild animals that are not in captivity. Did you hear me? Twice the life expectancy. So if all the critics out there are going, oh my God, it stresses them out so much and they're so miserable, wouldn't you think that stress would have an effect on their life expectancy if it was that extreme? Wouldn't you think they wouldn't live twice as long because they're being fed properly, medical care, uh, everything they need? Now, everything they need, ha ha ha. So there's the right and wrong part. Here's, here's the right and wrong of animals in captivity. Here's the thing, guys. Animals, every animal on this planet, every single one of us, you, me, dog, cat, bird, whatever, we all need a job. That job is what provides us instinctual fulfillment, uh, personal fulfillment, whatever you want to call it. Every animal on this planet needs a job to do because that's how we're all hardwired. And so here is, and, and I don't disagree with this smidgen of the argument, if we don't provide proper enrichment and care for these animals when they're in captivity, then yes. Yes, that's when it's not okay. That's when we're not doing something in the betterment of the animal and human beings. Um, we're doing that animal wrong. So what we have to do is provide artificial stimulation. If we have a, if we have a hawk, guess what we're going to do with that hawk? We're going to fly them to get their food. What's wrong with that? That's what they do in the wild. It's exactly what they do in the wild, and the birds love it. I mean, they, if they didn't, why would they keep doing it? Instinct tells them, go after the mouse. Fly. So you're actually fulfilling that instinct by flying those birds. And that's what they do in these zoos. That's what they do in captivity, guys. They do training programs, enrichment programs to mimic the same sort of job that these animals do in the wild. If it's a foraging animal, they, they put the food in different places in their enclosures to allow them to forage. Um, look, years ago, <laughs> years ago, uh, we're not going to go into too much detail on this client, but years ago, I had a client who got a miniature pig that wasn't a miniature pig. Let's start there. Uh, it, was, it was a pig, guys. It was a pig that they were told was a miniature pig. And they wanted to make the pig a vegetarian because they are vegetarians. Now, I informed them that pigs are not vegetarians. Pigs actually, the whole rooting, you know, rooting into the ground... They're looking for insects and bugs and critters and all kinds of fun things to eat. That's animal protein. So I said, look, you can feed them a fortified pellet. It's not like you got to go out and forage in your yard for bugs for your pig, but <laughs> it's going to want to. That's what a pig wants to do because that's their natural instinctual. So if I put a pig inside a house and I don't let them forage naturally and I, I try to make them a vegetarian, do you think they're going to have the best quality of life? No, they're not. Okay, so you see the problem here. It's all about providing the correct enrichment, the correct food, uh, and the correct job for that animal to let them thrive and be successful. So, look, I have worked full contact with animals. I've worked limited contact with animals, and there is no comparison. Full contact, you get so much more out of, as I truly believe, as does the animal. Okay, 
it's it's incredible what you can learn working full contact with an exotic animal, okay? Um, you know, look, I, one of my favorite animals that I worked with uh, ended up being birds. And I was very surprised because I didn't I didn't know, honestly, when I'm going into it, I really didn't know a lot about birds. I was more a dog guy when I first started working with exotics, uh, exotic animals. And I really, truly fell in love with birds and vultures, like particularly kind of kind of got me. I, mean, I, I, I love the hawk, the owls. I loved all of them. Like I really, the birds of prey in general, I love the, the, the macaws and, and parrots as well, but birds of prey were fascinating to me. And it's all um, instinct-based. And you really learn that when you start interacting with them and hanging out with them. And I had this one bird I could literally, oh, I had this hawk I could cuddle up with. I loved that bird. She loved, we had such an incredible relationship. I'll tell you another quick story. Um, after I left the job where I worked with this bird, I hadn't seen her and I think it was like 10 months, maybe almost a year. I hadn't seen her. And I came around the corner. She saw me from about probably 40 feet away, 50 feet away. Now, of course, they have incredible eyesight, so that's nothing to her anyway. But uh, she saw me from about 40, 50 feet away, started chirping like a little baby birdie. Chirp, chirp, chirp. She got so excited when she saw me come around that corner. And I mean, I just walked right up to her. This bird, I didn't even need to wear a glove. I could put this bird up on my arm without a problem. I didn't need a glove with her. I could just hold her and ah, miss that bird. That was one of the coolest experiences ever. Um, anyway, so that's the point guys. That's the point. That experience wouldn't have been the same if I wasn't working full contact with that bird. It's just, it's just that simple. It wouldn't be, you know? So to sit here and say animals shouldn't be mascots to me is just ignorant because it's like an all or nothing. And that's not the way it works. Look, years ago, my <clears throat> university of Florida, I am a Gator fan years and years and years, we're talking many years ago. It's been a long time guys. So let's not, we can't judge the past. All right. You just, you can't, you weren't there. We weren't there. It, even if it's wrong, it's like, I can't, what's the point. Okay. Learn from the past, learn from it. Don't live in it. Okay. Uh, look really quick. Lao Tzu, Chinese philosopher to live in the past is to be depressed, to live in the future is to be anxious, to live in the present is to know peace. All right, something to think about. Even myself, right? We can all learn from that. So they used to have an alligator at the University of Florida because the University of Florida, we are the gators, right? And they had an alligator on property and the students used to come and I mean, I heard, my, my parents told me when they were there stories that people would come and throw marshmallows and feed the gator marshmallows. Not very good for an alligator, guys. Um, so there's there's an example of where maybe, yeah, lack of education, understanding, shouldn't have been letting people do that. That's the kind of stuff that, that ruins it for the people doing it right. So that's kind of how I see it. It's just because somebody over here is doing it wrong doesn't mean that the person over here doing it right should be punished for it. We need more people doing it right with animals. We need more people providing proper enrichment, medical care, love, attention, affection, uh, structure, rules, boundaries, training. We need more of that. The only way to get more of that is through education. One more story before we go here. Um, years ago, I was working at um, a theme park and we used to bring animals out into the uh, into the park to let people take stand next to them, take a picture, interact, talk about them. It was cool. I loved that. That was one of my favorite things to do. And one of the biggest reasons why, education. One day I'm standing there and I'm holding a hawk on my arm. And this, I mean, guys, the kid was like 12 years old. He's not like a four-year-old. This is like a 12-year-old boy who walks up to me, sees this hawk on my arm and goes, wow, what kind of owl is that? Now, I don't know if it's just me because I love animals, but I mean, I have memories of being in kindergarten and drawing an owl, the eyes and the beak and the, the way that, you know, they look different than a hawk, guys. 
I don't expect him to know the species of the bird, but for crying out loud, hawk or eagle, those look similar. Different sizes, but they look similar. An owl looks nothing like a damn hawk. And this kid called it an owl, and I go, we're failing our kids. We are failing. This was 10 years ago. We're failing our society when a 12-year-old child doesn't know what an eagle, hawk, owl even looks like. This is why it's important that we do have animals as mascots, that we interact with these animals, that we show the public safe, healthy interactions and training is what we need to do to learn, to educate. I think it's a shame that we're getting further and further away from nature because it's, it's happening everywhere. Skyscrapers, apartments going up. I, that's not for me, guys. I, I want to be around nature. I want to be surrounded by, by fresh air, by animals. And I think something as simple as a college mascot, you might be surprised. That interaction, that, that they, when they bring War Eagle and that bird flies down in the stadium, that's one of my earliest memories uh, at Universal when I was a kid. Bird flying down, landing on. And it influenced me. It had an impact on me. And without seeing that, without experiencing that, I don't know that I would be doing what I do. So it's something to think about. We need more animal interactions. We need more people understanding what these wonderful creatures are. So college mascots to me are a great way to do that. And there's nothing wrong with it if it's done correctly. Always a right and a wrong way to do everything in life, guys. There's always a right and a wrong way. Find yourself on the right way. The answer to today's trivia question, the first dogs registered to the AKC were a part of what group? It's the sporting group. Yes, the first dogs recognized the AKC were the Pointer, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever, the Clumper Spaniel, Cocker Spaniel, Sussex Spaniel, Irish Water Spaniel, the Irish Setter, the English Setter, and the Gordon Setter. Next on Speaking Dogcast, it's the first pets. Today on The First Pets, we'll be talking about Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, he was the 37th president of the United States, serving from 1974 to 1977. He became president after uh, Richard Nixon resigned due to the Watergate scandal. Now, Ford originally became vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned as VP in 1973. Now, he's the only president to have been appointed as both president and vice president. And another interesting fact about Ford, he is the only president to have made the rank of Eagle Scout in the Boy Scouts. Now, the Fords actually had a few pets over the years. The president and his wife gifted a Seal Point Siamese cat uh, named Shan for Easter of 1973 to their daughter, Susan. The cat was fond mostly of women, but was known to like the president as she would rub up on his legs from time to time. Now, Shan was not the biggest fan of the dogs that they had in the White House, and would spend a lot of his time, well, in hiding. <laughs> now, the cat's full name was Shan Shane. Shan Shen, Shan Shane, don't know if I'm saying that right. Named after a town in China that the Fords had visited. The Ford family did also have a few dogs over the years. Lucky, he was a mixed breed, and unfortunately, we don't actually know much about him. Then there was Liberty. She was a female golden retriever, and Goldens were definitely the favorite breed of the Ford family. I can relate. It's uh, definitely mine. <laughs> they had actually just lost one of their Goldens right before the move to the White House, and their daughter Susan pretty soon after began looking for a new puppy from, uh, puppy from a reputable breeder. However, Susan was trying to kind of, you know, keep it under wraps 
on who she was getting the dog for. Breeder was asking very many questions, only trying to ensure that the dog was going to a good home. You know, she started by saying the dog would be going to a nice middle-aged couple who had had Goldens before, still wanted to know more. What kind of house do they live in? You know, he asked that. She responded, a large white house with a fence around it. <laughs> Finally, after the breeder asked the uh, what the owner did for a living, you know, could he afford to feed a big dog? She finally gave in. She told him, look, the dog's for the president, right? Like, I'm his daughter. <laughs> the breeder, of course, could not have been more ecstatic once he found out who one of his dogs would be going to. Yes, now, Liberty also became the mother of other dogs while at the White House. She had four females and five males. And the Fords only kept one of the puppies and gave the rest away. The puppy that they kept was named Misty, and she and Liberty caused... Apparently, as we get in here time and time again with dogs in the White House, a lot of mischief around the White House, but everybody loved them because how can you not love a golden? And after Ford's presidency was over, both dogs returned home with them and lived out to their old age. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the listener Q&A. The first question today comes from Pam from St. Augustine, Florida. Pam asks, my dog likes to eat poop. Well, that's not a question. He started doing this a few months ago. My vet says there's nothing wrong with him, no nutritional deficiencies or anything. It's really gross. He'll even turn right around after he's done pooping and he will eat it. How can I get him to stop? Oh, good question, Pam, because you're not the only one out there. This is more common of a problem than you think it is. Thank goodness it's not too common of a problem, uh, but it's more common than you might think. Look, first thing I'd say, I don't know how well you know your vet or trust your vet, but first thing I'd say is maybe get a second opinion, maybe even a third opinion. Uh, let's see what a few different veterinarians have to say, because to me, I want to eliminate any biological issues first, because that's just it. If there is a biological, nutritional, whatever kind of issue going on there, then Trying to tackle, uh, trying to tackle it from a behavioral perspective is not going to necessarily work so well, right? So we definitely want to try to eliminate all those medical variables first. If you feel like you have eliminated all the medical variables, look, no short way to say it. You've got to stop him from doing it and reward when he stops doing it. Okay, so you need to watch him when he poops. Sorry, uh, you cannot let him outside, not attend. And for that matter, I would be leashing him up. And that way, the second he goes to turn around and eat his poop, you're redirecting him with a leash. Maybe even use that kissing noise that I've talked about, kissing noise exercise on your, uh, redirecting that focus to you and then feeding him once he leaves the poop alone and looks up at you. Okay, you've got to break a pattern. That's all you're doing. You're breaking a pattern, but... Look, this is where I can't read a dog's brain. I can't tell you why he's making that decision. I can tell you the pattern of it and that it's clearly very strengthened to the point that he'll just turn around and do it. Uh, so this is a very strengthened pattern and therefore you have to be consistent. You have to be out there every single time, potentially for months, you heard me, potentially for months to break this habit. It depends. It really depends on how ingrained this is. Um, so yeah, you have to leash him up. You have to control when he goes so he can't eat other poop. You got to keep an eye on him. Look, if you take him to the dog park, this is going to be tough. You you almost can't for a while. It may not be what you want to hear, but it's going to be a problem if he can still get away with eating poop at the dog park because then he's still practicing the behavior. The whole point is we need to get him to stop eating the poop. And if I can control that variable, reinforce that variable, uh, you know, another then, then, then all of a sudden he's going to go, well, I don't really want to eat my poop. I'm going to get the treat over here. Okay. It's going to potentially take a little while to break this habit. He's getting something out of eating that poop. I don't know why I can't tell you. Um, 
That's what his brain is telling him to do. So we have to break that habit, leash him up, redirect away when he looks at you and gives up on the poop, reinforce it with a treat. Okay, start there and see how that goes. Next question. This comes from Patricia from Boston, Massachusetts. Patricia says, my dog loves to go for walks, so much so that he grabs the leash while we're walking and walks himself. One of my friends said, I really shouldn't let him do that. And then he's trying to control the walk. I thought it was just really cute. What do you think? If you've listened to my show before, Patricia, you might already know what I think here. And you're maybe looking for confirmation one way or the other. I'm going to agree with your friend. Okay, it's it's definitely not a good thing that your dog is walking. It is a controlling behavior. Um, and then to me, it also becomes an obsessive behavior, right? Like, let's just take the control part of it away. I don't like any obsessive behavior with any animal. I don't. Um, you know, as I talked about before, anything obsessive is not a good thing. Look at a human being. If you, I know, out there in kind of a weird example, but if you were to obsessively drink water, you can actually overhydrate and kill yourself accidentally. Yeah, like legit. Uh, milk, right? Those stupid milk challenges where people are supposed to chug milk. No, don't do it. Dumb. You can hurt yourself. Uh, okay. Too much of anything. Too much sugar, right? Too much fat. Too much. Uh, and let's go to the other extreme. Not enough. Not enough fattening foods. If you're not eating enough of that, that's not healthy either. It's all about balance, right? Um, so kind of going out, out, of the, out of the frame here. But... My point is, I don't like obsessive behaviors. And if your dog is obsessively walking himself, just that fact alone makes it not a good, not a desirable behavior, right? So no, it's not okay. Now, I don't want you like yanking the leash out of his mouth or anything like that. I don't want you to hurt his teeth or anything crazy. Um, but it might be a good idea. Like one of the tricks that I do is if you have that martingale collar on, which you should, uh, if I have that martingale collar, and I'm look, I'm just going to guess you have a retriever. You didn't tell me, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you probably have a retriever. Um, so most of the time, that's that's those are the dogs that do it. Not all the time. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm guessing. I could be wrong. Don't, don't, come on, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so what you're going to do is you're going to have the martingale collar on. You want to take the martingale and actually pull it up to the top of the neck so it's at more of the base of the head. And don't pull it too tight. You want to very, very lightly, but just enough that it's tension. You're actually going to pull up, right, on the back. And that way the tension is actually pulled up in the head and the leash stays up here. So when it goes to bite it, He's not going to be able to get it. Okay, very loose. You want to keep it loose enough that it's still loose, but up enough that the leash stays somewhat taut so he can't get to it above behind his head. Okay, that's the key there. Do that for a little while. Keep it up. And then once you feel like he's sort of giving in and relaxed and giving up on the leash, try to relax the leash all the way. Get that nice loose leash going. See what happens. If he goes to grab it again, do a turn. Redirect him. Turn around. Pull the leash back up. Create that slight tension again. Wait till he relaxes. He gives up on it once he does it's going to be this back and forth. And what we're going to show him is that the more you relax and give up and loosely schwalk, the more we hang out. The more life is good. The more it's all, all great. But the more you grab that leash, the more it disappears. You don't get to grab it anymore. And then I can keep the focus up with that collar. Okay. So kind of, kind of a little punishment reward there. Very light, very minimal, but that's what it's going to take. Okay. And then of course, once he's leaving the treat, once he's leaving the leash alone, very important, make sure you're praising him. Good boy. Good. Give him a treat. One other tip you can take away is a leave it command. 
if you can teach your dog a leave it command starting with treats and then start uh, uh, transferring it to toys and things like that, believe it or not, a leave it, believe it or not, a leave it, believe it or leave it, there you go. Um, believe it or not, your dog will start leaving that leash alone if you use that command. If you strengthen that command enough outside of the walk, once you get on the walk, a leave it should be able to really help you, give you another tool um, to get your dog leaving that leash alone. So hope that helps out and, uh, and good luck out there walking your dog, getting to leave that leash alone. That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button, do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday. Follow me on Instagram. And if you guys love what you're hearing, give me that five-star rating. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget, get out there and walk your dog.